Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. And today we're going to talk about an upcoming conference at IU that uh, involves the relationship and the bonds between humans and non-humans. With me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we have one guest today. Alice Miller is a professor of English in the uh, English department at IU and also a graduate of the IU School of Law. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Alice, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us today. Mary Catherine. Hi, Bob. Hi. Good to see you. Did a nice job last night. Oh, yeah. The debate. I'm multimedia this week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this won't be so much a debate, I hope. It'll no. be more uh, an informational and uh, interesting conversation. Um, I, I, people just tuning in and heard me talk about this conference involving relationships and bonds between humans and non-humans might not really have any idea what I'm talking about. So, Alice, can you talk about what the conference is about, the title of it? And Sure. The uh, conference is called the Kindred Spirits Conference, and – I had a hard time actually sort of describing it because it's a complicated topic, but one of the, I think, the the best way to sort of pinpoint it is to say that uh, when the call for papers went out to the presenters, um, I said that we were interested in hearing what they had to say about the relationship between human and non-human animals, and I just left it at that. They could Mm -hmm. interpret that any way they wanted. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of um, response did you get? Uh, actually, it was huge. Um, I really wasn't prepared for it. Um, probably uh, several hundred proposals came in and inquiries. Um, actually, believe it or not, from around the world. Um, mm-hmm. I had uh, proposals from uh, Singapore, China, uh, Italy, uh, England, and so on. And obviously, there are uh, economic reasons why some of those people didn't come, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it's very expensive and and uh, the conference isn't able to pay presenters. Uh, most most conferences don't. But um, anyway, the the response was overwhelming. And what I was really pleased with, um, there was another component to the conference, which is the word interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. And so I was really delighted that so many people from so many dis- different disciplines responded. Mm-hmm. So uh, how did you get involved from uh, you know, the English department and, and a background in law as well? Why, why did you Well, I'm an to... animal lover, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you. Simple, yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, I was sort of looking around for some way to create a project that I would want to be involved in that I would and thinking of a conference that I would want to attend and um, there was a, a, a grant opportunity through the university you apply for it at the, at the new perspectives grant and so I wrote a proposal and um, try to describe as I say something that I would like to attend and be a part of and learn from and so it was kind of a self uh, enlightened self-interest here at work uh, that I wanted to uh, see if I could put together something that would interest other people too. And, and it seems to have done that. I'm really fascinated by the, uh, the idea that you, th- you threw out a topic that's fairly broad and people can, could interpret it in a variety of different ways. And it's, it's as you said, in, interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, you got 120 responses. How did you... A lot more than that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were the... What, what's sort of the range? And, and I guess if you could just describe um, some of the different topics that you've sort of settled on that will be discussed in the papers that will be presented um, at the conference. What, are the, what kinds of topics are you... Uh, are, are going to be discussed at the conference? Um, well, a whole range. And one of, I should preface this by saying that um, I really wanted this to be accessible to anyone who's interested in animals, however they define that, right? Um, and so I was trying to stay away from just a strictly academic conference. Um, so I'm hoping that the papers will be arranged and the present, there'll be some presentations. There's a visual arts presentation. Um, there will be somebody presenting on the ethics of actually using uh, live animals in humane education programs. You know, so in other words, you're trying to teach people why they shouldn't own pet tigers, but you've got a, a tiger there with you to demonstrate. So the sort of complications with that. Um, although there will be no tigers at the conference, I can assure the IMU who's hosting the conference, they don't need to worry. Yes, or not that you know of. Not that I know of, right. Uh, that's true. Um, but some of the papers will address uh, things um, such as uh, ecotourism, uh, religion and animals, um, 
law, uh, the sort of uh, sort of current uh, kind of uh, shifts and changes that are taking place in laws that relates to animals. Um, some people will be talking about bioethical um, topics, and what what pleases me is that a lot of the people are coming from not only all over the country um, and from out of the country, Canada, New Zealand, Australia but that they're bringing with them very, very different perspectives, either from very practical kinds of experience with animals, like one woman is a veterinarian who's going to come and talk, um, to you know people who are uh, sort of uh, ethologists or biologists in academic settings. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get too far along, we ought to do a little housekeeping, I guess. When, when is the conference, and is it open to the public, or are parts of it open to the public? Yes, parts of it are open to the public, and the conference begins on Thursday, September 7th. The opening panel begins at 3 o'clock and goes from 3 to 5. And essentially the way I've set this up is that the people who have registered uh, get preferred seating, and then however many else we can cram in the room without exceeding the the limits um, are more than welcome. Uh, the The keynote speech is being given by Donna Haraway. Um, her talk is called "We Have Never Been Human When Species Meet." I think it's going to be really exciting. She's a wonderful thinker uh, with a very interesting background. She has a background in biology and philosophy. She's a professor. Um, at UC Santa Cruz, um, and she's a very accessible person, and her talk begins at 5.15, and that will be in the large auditorium alumni hall in the uh, Indiana Memorial Union, so I would really encourage people to come for that, even if they can't come for anything else. I think her talk's going to be very exciting, and that'll be about an hour. Uh, and then the events will continue sort of 8 to 5, uh, Friday through Saturday. Well, let me, let me ask, and I know that you know, it's her keynote speech, so you don't know what she's going to say exactly. But what, when you read that um, topic, you know, that, that uh, sort of headline of what she's mm-hmm. going to talk about, what's it make you think about? What, what, what do you expect to hear her talk about? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things is is that I assume that or uh, sort of expect, I guess, or am hoping um, that she will sort of be troubling some of the borders between what we think about being human and what we think about as animal. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I mean, this is not uh, uh, suggesting that people and animals are the same. I mean, people are animals for for starters. Right. I mean, we we tend is that to we tend to forget that. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, some of the distinctions. Um, for example, one of the big distinctions between uh, human primates and other primates is that we've always said that humans use tools. And then now, recently, they've discovered that a lot of primates are using tools. So we have to keep sort of thinking about the shifting borders and boundaries here and what it means to be human and what it means to be animal. So I suspect, uh, given what I know of Donna's work, um, and this is a new piece that she's uh, presenting, as part of a new project that she's going to be working in that terrain. Mm-hmm. Okay, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. We're talking with Alice Miller about uh, a conference coming up, a kindred spirits conference about humans and non-humans. We should, we should probably, while we were doing the housekeeping, we should probably offer a website that people can go to or a web address. Do you have something? I knew you were going to ask me oh, that. And, the way, and I have it on my, um, <laughs> this is terrible. Um <laughs> uh, I don't have it exact. I don't have it on hand. I'm so sorry. Um, if, well, maybe it's, it's listed on the IU website under events and conferences. It's also listed through the English department uh, website. If they Google Alice Miller Kindred Spirits, that's A L Y C E M I L L E R. Uh, and kindred spirits, they will come on onto the website uh, quite quickly. I've just I've had it plugged in as a sort of macro, so I'm sorry. Um, it's one of those weird IU websites with the tilde and the backslash, and so I'm almost reluctant to try to recreate it here. Probably sorry. easier to get at it this way, anyhow. I think so. Well, you know, anybody who's listened to our show uh, much over the years would know that we do lots of animal shows. Mm-hmm. We've done had lots of uh, Monroe County Humane Association people. And mm-hmm. we, did a, we did a program uh, with some folks who were producing a radio show called Kindred Spirits, which you may or may not mm-hmm. be familiar with. We so even had an animal psychic ago, con. Had an animal psychic. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, we, you know, we, we, animals are uh, a big topic for us. So I'm hoping that a lot of people will call in and, and ask questions. This is, uh, you know, this is a lot more than how do I winterize my doghouse and those kind of things, which mm-hmm. we sometimes get. But uh, I hope that we'll get lots of, of calls. 
In our correspondence by email, one of the things that uh, I hope that we talk about today is the distinction between animal rights and animal welfare, mm-hmm. which I think that you uh, suggested that you could talk about. Yeah, let's well, explore that. Yeah, I, that, it's a really interesting uh, kind of kind of distinction. Although I think it's important to to think of any sort of um, idea like this as a, as a spectrum. As a, it's not a it's not a linear. You know, it's not either. I'm just an animal rightist or I'm just an animal welfareist. I think one of the sort of most succinct definitions that I've heard is that the difference between animal rights and animal welfare is the difference between empty cages and larger cages. Hmm. And I think what, you know, what that obviously speaks to is this idea of welfareists um, tend to be concerned. They're not, they're, for example, a, an animal welfareist might, and this is one of many examples, but an animal welfareist might eat meat but believe that um, the animals who are being uh, produced and consumed need to be treated well, right, humanely, uh, whereas an animal rightist might say, I think it's ethically wrong to eat meat. That would, mm-hmm. That's a very concrete example. Um, so. mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how, how would you uh, characterize zoos in this whole animal rights <laughs> welfare thing? I mean, I, I, I remember as a kid going to zoos, and, you know, I was interested in seeing the animals, but I always felt really Really bad for them. Me too. They were in. That was never a happy experience. No, never a happy experience. Depressing. But but, you know, recently. No, Grandma, don't take me to the zoo. (laughs) But you know, I mean, recently, within the last few years, I've been to the Indianapolis Zoo, and it seems like I mean, maybe it may still not be the greatest thing in the world, but it's a whole different experience than the old days. Mm -hmm. Should we have we should we do away with zoos or? Is this a place where people that can be educational and and the animals' welfare can be treated appropriately? It's a really huge question. There was a book a few years ago called Zoo Underground. I don't know if you read it, which talk about depressing, uh, began to examine the sort of behind-the-scenes practices of a lot of zoos, things like, um, you know, when animals got old, they'd send them off to these places for either medical research or... Um, it was pretty sad. Or to, for canned hunting, which is basically when animals are placed in enclosures and often even drugged. And then uh, people with a lot of money get to come in and shoot them and yeah. take them home as trophies. Um, but Producing more, more babies than they can house because babies are an attraction. Is that That's right. I mean, yeah. the public, this is part of the problem is that in order to, to make money, zoos also had to present what the public wanted. And a really good example is white is the white tiger. Mm-hmm. The white tiger is an anomaly in nature. You just wouldn't see one. I mean, if you did, it wouldn't live long. It's they're, you know, they don't blend in. They're not camouflaged. They are beautiful. There's no question. Uh, most zoos now, for ethical reasons, do no longer breed them because they came with a lot of genetic problems. Mm-hmm. But the public really loved them. And up until just really recently, a lot of major zoos around the country were still exhibiting white tigers. And now most of them are phasing them out. And, ex- and, and if you go to places like, I think it was the Washington Zoo where I was uh, a couple of years ago, they actually had a sign at the exhibit explaining to the public why they no longer had the white tigers. Mm-hmm. Um, zoos in general, I think they're having to clean up their acts. I think there are some zoos that one w- might put in the category of good zoos, or, you know, others that are, oh, maybe from lack of funding or whatever, um, less good. And I think your experiences that both you and Mary Catherine describe, Bob, as children going and feeling sort of depressed, I think, you know, I think a lot of people feel that way. There's something about watching a caged animal. And if you've ever been out in nature, just sort of in a wilderness area and watched wild animals, they move very differently. The, you know, the experience is totally different. Um, But a lot of zoos have begun to understand that animals need more than simply food and water. And they've started to do um, enrichment programs, some of the better zoos, and a lot of them have cleaned up their breeding programs. The The problem, I doubt we'll ever get rid of zoos. I mean, they are a public attraction. They do make money. They are something that cities tend to have. Well, it's an industry. It is an industry. That's right. Absolutely. Um, but the other side of, there's another side of, of some of the, quote, better zoos. Um, and I think Cincinnati Zoo and San Diego Zoo sort of fit into that category if you're going to sort of do five-star zoos, four-star <laughs> zoos. Um, and, and, and what they do is they are actually responsible for breeding programs to keep certain species alive. Now, this creates another problem because these are not animals that are going to then be released into the wild, right? I mean, you don't breed tigers or a certain kind of animal that's endangered in 
um, in a in a capt- captive space, right, and then release it. So it's it raises some very interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. And noon at indiana.edu. You know, I notice um, pet stores now often don't offer dogs and cats, but they will work with the local humane society mm-hmm. or association and um, try to place those yes. animals. I would, I would think that would be seen as at least some somewhat of an improvement over past um, practices. But I know that the puppy mills and and I don't know, probably to some extent cat mills too probably still exist. And will that be something discussed at your conference? I don't know if anybody's dealing with that topic specifically, but it is really important. And actually there are a lot of puppy mills right here in Indiana. Um, And I would say that to anyone who is wanting to go out and buy a puppy to get a puppy um, or a kitty, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and usually it is the, you know, the, the, the diminutive because people like the baby animals, Um, to avoid pet stores, and I'm sorry if that is um, upsetting to people who run pet stores in town. But um, We're not a commercial station, <laughs> <laughs> right? But uh, generally, um, generally, you need to ask where these animals are coming from. And Missouri, for example, is a state that has a lot of puppy mills and uh, and cat mills, and they, they ship the animals in. Not all the animals make it because they are shipped in trucks. Um, and it's not so much, a lot of people think they're rescuing an animal. They see an animal in a pet store and think, oh, I'm going to rescue it. I'm going to buy it. I've had that impulse. I've had that impulse to go into a certain pet store in town and just, because it breaks my heart, you know, I'm just going to pull out my credit card and I'm going to take all six puppies that are, you know, standing there on the wire uh, floors and barking and crying. And the fact is, I'm only contributing to the mm-hmm. problem because mm-hmm. those puppies have mothers and those mothers are back in a cage someplace um, in someone's backyard, basically. <laughs> yeah. um, and the conditions can be really, really terrible. There's a, an organization against puppy mills and you can get online and look it up and Get more information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I, I have a nine-year-old, and he would always want to go to the pet store. And I said, I can't. I can't take you mm-hmm. in there. It upsets me too much. I can't go. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I, Just, I, I'll put a plug in for the shelter because if you uh, puppies, you know, they have puppies, and they have grown dogs. But if you want a kitten, oh my gosh, you go out and there, there you. Don't you can just walk into the lobby at the Monroe County Absolutely. Animal Shelter, mm-hmm. and there are cages of the cutest kittens you could possibly see anywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so. yeah. And I think uh, Mary Catherine's question about the um, what the some of the pet stores are doing, the the, the pet supply stores are doing with providing um, publicity for animals already who are here who need homes from the shelter, the shelter animals. I think it's a great program that they're doing. Mm-hmm. All Great right. service. Um, there are a lot of a lot of topics we could uh, go into. Uh, one area is animal law, and you, know, you have a law degree. There are a lot that's been a topic in Bloomington specifically, in Monroe County, mm-hmm. certainly in our region, because there there have been you know issues. Um, uh, what kind of strides do you think we're making in terms of, of laws that would protect animals? Well, typically, laws regarding animals have been there for the safety and welfare of human beings. Mm-hmm. Laws like your dog needs to have a rabies shot. Um, even laws that uh, have that uh, include restrictions on the owning of wild animals and so on. Um, you know, most of the laws have been about making sure that the animals, if you have a wild animal, that it's confined so it doesn't get out and hurt somebody. Um, and very few of the laws have really been for, for over the years, with the exception of things like, you know, the, the, the Animal Welfare Act, which is a huge, um, another whole ball of wax. Um, but most of them have been designed to, at the very most, give minimal standards of care, um, provide minimal standards of care for animals. What Indiana has done, interestingly, just in the time I've been here, and I, I moved here from California um, 11 years ago, uh, they are one of the states that has uh, anti-cruelty statute and includes a fel- felony component to that. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds great, and it's really important, and it came out of a specific case here in Bloomington, which many people probably remember. Some of your listeners may remember the Olivia the Cat. Mm-hmm. Very tragic case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it often takes a specific, what I call the poster cat or the poster dog, mm-hmm. a specific case to launch that kind of interest. Um, and that was done through legislation, um, and the I think the law was passed in 1998 and then strengthened in 2002. Um, 
The problem is enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because animals are still legally property. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the category they fit into. Um, and so the other, the other thing uh, that I think Bloomington has done, two things. One is the uh, anti-tethering ordinance, which I think is really wonderful um, because uh, it's going to make li- a lot of dogs' lives better, I hope. Mm-hmm. And um, another thing that Bloomington did, which is sort of interesting, and I know people sort of snicker about this kind of thing, um, but they changed. They're one of 14 cities in the country to – I think they were the 14th uh, city in the country to change their uh, ordinance language from using the word pet um, owner to guardian. Um, And I think that shift in language actually asks us to sort of think about our relation, rethink our relationships to the animals that we live with. Mm -hmm. Does it have any any legal standing? No, in this in in what sense? Well, in 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 a sense of if uh, ownership versus guardianship. Guardianship. If if somebody uh, takes. Oh, I see what you're right. That's very, that's a very interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I I don't think that it changes that. I don't think it changes anyone's responsibility. I don't think you can say, well, my vicious dog uh, bit you, but I don't have any responsibility because I'm just his I'm just his guardian. You know, he has free free will. Right, (laughs) he gets to do what he wants. No, I don't think that would fly or wash. But I think what it does do is it gives us a sense of. sort of thinking about, yes, we have these responsibilities to these animals, and yes, they are under our care and protection. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's analogous to children, right? Um, and I've, I'm actually interested in this sort of relationship between uh, the children's rights movement and animal rights movement and some of the uh, similarities. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I think that the language is, it's symbolic, but very meaningful. Mm-hmm. And it has, I think, material impact on the way that we think about animals and live with our animals. I, I think... Uh, and- Again, I'll throw this out as sort of a, um, an idea, and you can agree, disagree, or otherwise. But I, I think there are, there are people that sort of are born to be connected to animals. But I do think that, that there's a lot of education that could go on um, in terms of, of this language issue to refer to you know a dog or a cat, uh, uh, the person with the dog or cat as a guardian rather than an owner, or to have a an animal companion instead of a pet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think those those mm-hmm. nuances in language can be educational to people and can sort of advance this discussion and make people think. I think I think a lot of young people will will mimic what their parents how their parents mm-hmm. treat animals and think about animals until they're old enough to think for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I I do think that there are um, you know there's certain people that have connections with animals, but I think that everybody can certainly be educated about, you know, the right way to, to treat dogs, cats and whatever. Yeah, I would agree. I actually agree with you. And I think that with children, you have to kind of teach children empathy. Mm-hmm. I mean, children and not just for animals, but for other people. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're this is back to our being animals as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of like getting a dog to share food. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and children the same way, you know, to learning to share a toy. I mean, that's against that's counter to all their instincts. Um, the reason I think another very important reason, which kind of comes out of your and and and, and your your question uh, leads me to this, and it sort of comes out of this discussion, is not only does the way we treat animals have impact on animals, but it has impact on on us as human beings. Um, there's a, a a very well established link, for example, between animal cruelty and domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of you know serial killers started out killing and torturing small animals, torturing and killing small animals. Um, and that's where this issue of education or empathy comes in. You know, if you if you see, if you are unable to imagine that someone else or another living creature has feelings, has sentience, uh, then it makes it easy to do destructive things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a very important um, connection. And I believe I've seen statistics as high as eighty percent. Um, of families in which there has been domestic violence, uh, there has also been animal abuse. There's a huge link there. So that's another reason to teach children empathy for animals, um, is to teach them basically to be able to think outside themselves. All right. We've hit uh, break time. I, I would okay. like to think that our, our listeners are out there just writing down their questions so they'll call during yes. the, next, <laughs> the next half hour. Uh, we do have an email we'll get to after the break. But our, our topic today um, is about the connections between humans and non-human animals. Alice Miller is our guest. You're listening to Noon Edition, and we'll be right back. 
You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU is a media sponsor for the 4th Street Festival of Arts and Crafts. For the past 30 years, this annual event has featured local and national artists presenting a wide variety of arts and crafts. The 4th Street Festival takes place on Labor Day weekend, September 2nd and 3rd, and WFIU will be handing out balloons to children of all ages in our booth. More information about this and many other events on our website at wfiu.indiana.edu. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and Alice Miller, who's our guest today. She's a professor of English and also a graduate of the Indiana University School of Law. If you have questions or comments, uh, please phone us at 855-0811 or from outside of the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. I think we have an email. We do. It begins, hello, can you discuss the interactions between the animal rights welfare movement or personal feelings on such topics and the embryonic stem cell research issue? I'm in favor of embryonic stem cell research as a matter of basic research. While adult stem cells appear to have much potential to abandon an entire subfield of research when the ethics of it are much in debate, as opposed to, say, the Nazi quote-unquote research, it strikes me as rather hypocritical that the politicians that are against ESL research on ethical grounds, while I wonder whether these same politicians are strict vegetarians, I somehow suspect they are not. Do you have a comment? Wow, that's a <laughs> yeah. I know it's a lot to bite off. That's a lot. I I don't really feel that I I'm in a position to comment on the on the stem cell research. Um, maybe you could from that. If I could ask you, Mary Catherine, to kind of pull a, a question or something that you would like think the listeners might be interested in having me respond to. Uh, I think it's just a relationship again, referring to the relationship between animals and humans. And mm-hmm. if you know, if stem cells are human, then. Uh, it gets back to animal research as well. But as far as the question, I don't know. I don't really get a whole question out of that. <laughs> well, maybe okay. maybe we could. I could just say something quickly about animal research, um, the use of animals, and I think one of the and that raises a really important um, issue because you know the the sort of the prime ethical question is well, if you could you know use a an, uh, a chimpanzee in research and discover a cure for cancer. Wouldn't that be worth sacrificing the chimpanzee? You know, it's one of these questions. Um, one of the problems I think that takes place with a lot of res- medical research um, using animal subjects is that there's a lot of duplication mm-hmm. because the very nature of research often is, I don't want to say people don't share research, but if there's competition for grants and so on, and I'm, I'm probably angering a lot of scientists and, and probably sound sort of naive saying this, but there is a there is an issue of sort of duplicating research and animals being used unnecessarily um, in those duplications. I, I always think about the fact that, that I've signed my share of you know human subjects <laughs> research forms mm-hmm. from people that I that the university the university sends somebody over to talk to me about something. I mean, it's, you can use research, humans, non-humans in research, but I think the element that always concerns me is the pain, the torture. Yeah, the suffering you know. aspect yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a, a phone call. and I might ask to our emailer if uh, if you want to sort of paraphrase yeah, the question clarify. or try to clarify. Yes, that would be helpful. Uh, yeah, it, was a very, it sounds like a very complex and a very intelligent question. But yeah, it's very thoughtful. Yeah, we just are having trouble deciphering it. So uh, let's go to the phone, though, for Susan. Susan? Yes. Go ahead. <clears throat> Yes, um, I grew up in a farm community in northern Indiana, and uh, recently they've been engaged in a battle to prevent a CAFO, a confined animal feeding operation, from entering the area. And I um, was uh, attempting to make an argument against the, uh, uh, about uh, confinement uh, feeding operations, um, an ethical argument against them, and I wondered if uh, 
Alice might be able to help me out in in that uh, argument. When you say confined uh, feeding operation, what exactly is that? What what exactly? How does uh, that work? It's a farming practice that takes um, large numbers of animals and uh, inhibits their free movement in order to, uh, you know, gain economically either more milk. Are you saying they're always in these cages? Um, when you say yes, confined, yeah, I, okay, that, that's what threw me because I know that a lot of the co- corporate, what we sort of consider corporate farming practices, have much more of a sort of production mill aspect, and a lot of the animals never sort of uh, see the light of day, basically. Um, and there are a lot of, lot of these with, for example, calves taken from their mothers at a very young age, mm-hmm. um, being raised for veal and uh, kept this, in very, very tiny places. Some of them can't even uh, lie down. Right. This particular one is a dairy operation, and mm-hmm. they, they prohibit the, the uh, animals from leaving and the, you know, walking around so that they can produce... Uh, more milk, right? And uh, they're the ones that re- require the creation of a of a lagoon for storing the waste because it it uh, you know, that's also an environmental yes, issue. Right. But uh-huh. I, I particularly was concerned about uh, making um, making an ethical argument against the confinement part of it. No, I think you've raised a really important point, and I'm glad you brought this um, to the listeners' attention, Susan, because I think a lot of people still envision sort of the old family farm style, right, where you drive by a farmhouse and right. there are, you know, maybe 20 cows grazing what seems to be sort of peacefully chewing their cuds and mm-hmm. in their, you know, in all, all their happy cowness and chickens running around and, you know, little kids going out with baskets and collecting eggs and so on. And the f- small family farms, as you know, having what sounds like you grew up on one here, right. um, they're, they're fallen by the wayside. And most of the meat and dairy um, produce that we get um, come from uh, these corporate uh, farms. And it's a, it's a huge question and an important question that you ask. And I don't have an exact answer, except that I think you come from a very interesting perspective, which is someone who is who has grown up on a farm and mm-hmm. someone who knows um, animals. And I think you yourself have probably the best argument by being right. able mm-hmm. to position yourself as someone who is not necessarily anti-farming, no. um, but that you are uh, you know, coming from a, a, a point of you have a certain expertise there. Um, well, I, I appreciate that. I just think it's a, you know, it's a hard, it seems to be a hard case to make. Uh, there's a lot of of course, um, uh, power of you know large corporations to to you know do such things, and in, apparently in Indiana, um, all it requires is a uh, go ahead from the Indiana Department of Environmental Management in order to get your uh, disposal of the waste taken care of, and then past that, there's no no consideration to given given to whether or not. Um, you know, the treatment of the animals is is uh, ethical. Well, this ties into what we were talking about a little bit earlier, Susan, and I appreciate your comments that mm-hmm. a lot of the legislation is to protect people. So these, the disposal of the waste is mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, the health of, 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 people. of, of people and not the animals. Um, who, who would be your audience for, your, uh, for the sort of response that you'd like to give? Um, the, well, actually, it's uh, people in the local community who mm-hmm. are, uh, atten- you know, there's sort of a, a movement to try to prevent this operation from Great. coming into the community. And, you know, my audience would be trying to convince more people to join the well, fight against them. Well, you sound like the perfect person to do it, as I say, with your, with your own farming background. Um, you might do a little bit of uh, research. I, you've probably read things like... Um, you know, Fast Food Nation and, and right. uh, Eric Schlosser's. I mean, he has one of the most, I think, sort of compelling and succinct sections on corporate farming in mm-hmm. that book. Um, there's a lot of information on it and um, maybe a few well-placed statistics. Um, and I think also kind of appealing to, again, this connection between human animals and non-human animals, uh, what this means for people. And oftentimes, uh, I don't know anything about the specific uh, group that you're talking about who are planning to come in, but a lot of times corporate farming involves, um, because the animals are kept in such tight quarters, uh, not only cruelty to the animals, but um, a lot of them are given antibiotics and things that then come 
that are then sort of peripherally consumed by mm-hmm. by people. And so I think that there's also a kind of uh, enlightened self-interest you can appeal to here as well. Right. It just seems like, to me anyway, that uh, anyone concerned with animal rights and animal welfare would certainly have to address uh, agricultural practices because there are such huge numbers of animals involved and it's sort of it's sort of easy to forget that uh, the practices with that are, are um, you know, need examination as well as a zoo or your home, you know, the animal Absolutely. that you have at home. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting things about animals raised on farms is that the question becomes, would these animals exist if there weren't farming? And probably the answer would be no. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the, so that that is an interesting starting point. But I think you're right that there is a, a real disconnect mm-hmm. uh, and there has to be, because if you think about when you go to the store to buy your meat, um, and, and that's what I mean, the disconnect, you know, you buy something in a, in a wrap package and you take it home, and you, you don't really have to address what it means, what that animal's life has been. Right. Um, and slaughterhouses, I mean, that's a whole other topic. I mean, not only, you know, the way the animals are raised, but then the, the slaughterhouse uh, issue. So you, you've raised some very helpful things here, and I appreciate your um, you're taking the time to call. Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right, Susan. Thanks a lot for the call. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. You know, I think the, the trend, though, seems to be that people's sensibilities are being raised. Um, for example, now you can buy cage-free eggs. And um, I think at least here in Bloomington, in the time that I've lived here the last 15 so or so years you can find you know homegrown eggs mm-hmm. are, are easier to find um vegetarianism has is just an accepted thing now and it's a it's a standard question you know are you a vegetarian mm-hmm. and it's not you know i don't think i think and maybe i've lived in bloomington too long um but i don't think that that has um really much of any um shock value left in it you know oh you're a vegetarian you know it mm-hmm. used to be a big deal but not so much anymore. Well, you raised something interesting about the cage-free eggs. There are a lot of these designations which bear closer examination, and cage-free does not necessarily mean what we always think it does. Um, it can also mean that animals are kept in large sort of warehouses, but just that they get to walk out of a little cage. Um, so it, we think of cage-free as sunlight, and, and a lot of times the logos on these um, products will show pictures of, you know, happy cows, happy chickens, happy pigs, and so on. Um, so I, I just think that it's, you know, it, as a consumer, it just it takes a little bit of effort to sort of mm-hmm. look beyond what's being sold and packaged and to sort of ask yourself, it's a starting point, ask yourself, you know, where where did this come from? And, you know, we're, again, this disconnect between what we put into our bodies as food and, 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 and the origins of that. All right. We have Bill on the line. We have another call. Bill, go ahead. Yes. Hi, Bill. Um, in regards to the question about corporate farming and putting our, what we're putting into our body and everything. Yes, sir. We should very well look at what we're putting in our body. I agree with that. Uh, but as far as the issue of corporate farming, um, I'm very familiar with both family farms and corporate farms since I've worked in this my entire life. Uh-huh. Most of the corporate farms, the animals are kept in a healthier and safer environment than they are on a family farm. I know that goes against the general perception, but that's actually the way it is in the real world. Uh, the family farms do not have the money to invest in the lagoons to store the manure. People are worried about the environment. Well, we need these lagoons for that. But what people mainly are concerned about, they want the low price, least cost food. Mm-hmm. That's where the corporate farms come in. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point by Bill. I mean, it's a, it's such a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess the the question is, Bill, when you talk about corporate farm, the conditions on corporate farms being better than family farms, I and mean, what do you what do you mean by that exactly? Okay, as an example, north of. In northern Indiana on I-65, we have 10 farms milking in excess of 2,500 cows each. Uh-huh. Until these farms came into the state in the last five years, Indiana was below average dairy, uh, dairy production state. Uh, we were below the national average. These 10 farms by themselves have put Indiana in one of the top eight producing states in the United States for average production per animal. That takes a healthy animal to do that. These, these farms are averaging over 20,000 pounds per cow, where your typical 
Indiana farm outside of these is averaging 16,000 pounds per cow. Mm -hmm. so these, these 10 farms also produce 35% of the milk produced in the state of Indiana by themselves. Uh -huh. And there are over 1,500 grade A dairies in the state. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate so, that. But that kind of then would operate under the assumption that quantity is good. Why? I guess, you Healthy know. Healthy cows. Cow has to be healthy to produce milk. She has to be well taken care of. Okay. She has to be comfortable. On these farms, they are very concerned about that. I can take you to farm after farm, smaller farm, where all they care about is getting a milk check. The cows are not taken care of. They're just, they're just there. Yeah. They may be. People may see them on pasture, but the pasture is poor quality. But all people see it. That's green grass. But it's not green grass that that cow can use. Mm-hmm. Well, you okay. make an interesting point. Yeah, actually, absolutely. I'm happy that you called in, Bill. Yeah, thanks is for that. And is there some kind of meeting coming up? I just caught this show in the, in the middle of it while walking in and out. There's a conference coming up that, that, that discusses a great deal of varied topics about um, the relationships between humans and non-human animals. So it's not only about corporate farming or anything like that. I don't that. think anyone's presenting on corporate farming, right. actually. Because personally, yeah. I don't believe we should be eating animals, but I've spent 30 years in the dairy industry. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks for So when time. is this meeting I'd like to get to? Or you'll, you'll announce it later? Uh, we'll give we the details right, again. Yeah. But we could give it. We could do it right now. Okay. Uh, the conference is called Kindred Spirits. Um, it's a large interdisciplinary conference uh, scheduled September 7th through 9th. The first panel is on September 9th from 3 to 5, um, and religion and, and animals will be the topic. Um, there are a lot of different topics being presented on, um, people from a lot of different fields and areas. So we hope you, you people out there will make it, and maybe you can make one of the events, Bill. I will try to make them all. Okay. okay. All right, Bill. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Well, I, I was going to just ahead. say, again, Bill caught a part of what we're talking about. This is a huge topic and, you know, with all sorts of different aspects of it that, you know, involve – you know, our, our human, our, our non-human companions like my little pug poodle mix and, <laughs> and, you know, corporate farming and zoos and all sorts of relationships. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, it's not just uh, that one topic. Uh, earlier in the program, we'd made a, a couple of references to um, people owning wild animals. We, mm -hmm. we talked about, I don't know why, but tigers seem to come up more than once. And um, I'm always curious why that's allowed at all. I mean, the, to me, that just strikes me as so nonsensical that uh, it, I don't understand this. And I, I wonder if you could enlighten me at all. Well, about 20 states uh, have bans, absolute bans on this. Um, it's, it's often referred to as the exotic animal trade. Mm -hmm. And that includes a wide range of animals. Um, some of it, a lot of it takes place on the black market, but a lot of it is completely legal. And there are actually journals you can buy for, you know, if you want to buy a pet tiger, it would cost you about maybe $600. Now, really, what are you going to do with the tiger once you have it? Well, they're very <laughs> cute. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's kind of a fantasy. Um, and uh, have you ever held a baby tiger? No. Um, well, if you go out to the Exotic Feline Rescue Center, which is um, actually a legitimate sanctuary, um, it's a real education to go out there because they do not breed um, or sell or exhibit animals. They are a sanctuary in the sense that they actually find a place, make a place for an animal that has been uh, raised in, usually in a private setting, um, either abused, mistreated. Um, a lot of the animals come malnourished and so on. Um, and they they do a great job out there, and, and I would encourage people to um, to visit them and support th what they're doing. The there is a fa I mean there are a lot of reasons that people will buy a wild animal or, or or get a wild animal, and some of it is is as I say fantasy, and some of it you know they've read um, a book about a maybe they've read what, Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, and they're thinking of Aslan the Lion, right? The problem is at about six months of age, a tiger or a lion wants to just eat you. They're, and in my experience, so few of them actually speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And they're hard to ride. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't think that everyone starts out with nefarious um, intentions. I think that a lot of it's just naive. And 
they're a reason that they're wild animals. Um, I mean, we have human beings have evolved to have relationships with dogs and cats. I mean, there's a very long and interesting sort of history mm-hmm. there, but it's not the same with wild animals. And um, Indiana, just, I mean, in terms of the law, it is legal to keep a pet tiger in Indiana. And the only reason you need to be licensed uh, by, for example, the USDA is has to do with the activity rather than the animal. Um, you could not own a raccoon probably in Indiana because unless you had an, a license from the DNR because that is an animal that's native to Indiana. These laws get very convoluted, so I won't. It's more than you want to hear here. But basically, the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, issues licenses. That's a federal license. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are, for example, let's take you, Mary Catherine. You've decided you've been been seduced by a little baby tiger, and you've just got to have that tiger, and you want to take him home. And you're not going to exhibit him. You're not going to breed him. You're just going to have him in your backyard. You don't need a license. Even, <laughs> I need to have even my head on, examined, but I don't need a license. Even in the middle of downtown Bloomington? Well, there are probably city ordinances. Oh, right, okay. I'm sure yeah. they'd come after oh, you. Yeah. But let's say you live at what they call out in the county. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. You, and, you, you can have a chicken. And so, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. Okay. We have a phone call and an email. Yeah. So let's go to the phone first. Susan? Susan is back? <laughs> yes. Okay, um, Susan. I, I wanted to just uh, respond briefly to Bill's comments. First of all, I feel that he uh, overgeneralized about the conditions of animals on a family farm uh, because uh, growing up on one, I know how humanely the animals there were treated. Uh, and secondly, uh, he points out the difficulty of the argument that I'm trying to make because he's suggesting that it's in the best interest of the animals to raise them under conditions, good conditions, and the best, and it's the best economic interest. And um, and to me, there's an analogy that you could draw with suggesting that you know, uh, prison people in prison are are well kept and. And but they they've committed a crime and the animals haven't done anything to deserve the confinement. And my particular concern is how we make an argument that um, other treatment aside, animals do not deserve to be confined in quarters like that. And um, and I'm finding that uh, argument uh, difficult to support with uh, scientific evidence. Susan, you just used a great phrase. This is Alice. Um, just not to interrupt you, but but to interrupt you, just to confirm, uh, you said best interests of the animals, and that's such an interesting idea. It's an interesting that actually an interesting idea that you know you often hear in the best interests of a child, right? When you're trying to mm-hmm. d- determine whether a child should be placed in a particular home or taken out, and um, courts, lower courts, have actually. Uh, this is usually with domestic animals, uh, companion animals like dogs or cats, but have actually invoked that phrase sort of in the best interest of the dog, in the best interest of the mm-hmm. cat, and sort of making dis- these distinctions. So I think you're right that we want to keep in, uh, in, in, in inside here, not just what's in the best interest of the uh, milk production industry right. or whatever, but what's in the best interest of the animal. And, and, and sometimes those things cannot be reconciled. Right. And also it, it seems interesting to me that uh, we, we have, um, you know, laws about cruel treatment of individual animals in, in homes and certain, in, you know, situations. Well, I know they can apply even to farms, but this whole um, arena is, seems to be uh, free to do whatever they want in that regard. Well, there's actually, if you look at the uh, anti-cruelty statute, the state uh, statute, you will see that it excludes uh, farm animals. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not, I mean, obviously, if someone were abusing, uh, you know, openly beating a horse or right. you know, doing something like that, uh, using a cattle prod on a car or something, cow or something like that, but it actually, the Animal uh, Welfare Act and so on, uh, these, these laws actually exclude um, uh, farm animals. Right, and farming and slaughtering practices. Right. So you can cut the beaks off chickens, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Okay, yeah. Susan. That's right. Okay, thank well, you, thank Susan. you. Thanks a lot for the call. We're going to move on now. We've got a couple of emails. We only have about three minutes to go, so. All right. Short answers. Lightning round. Uh, The argument about milk production and confining of cows reminds me of things I've read. I think I remember this right, about rotation of cow milking rather than continuous milking and the use of bovine hormones that such rotation and allowing the animals periods of rest actually produces more milk and higher quality milk. Similar arguments are made in Poland's new book, The Omnivore.
Bower's dilemma concerning a return to natural farming mm-hmm. as opposed to corporate, relating in not only less cruel techniques but better food as well. How can such arguments be brought to the attention of big farming if indeed there is a benefit to the consumer in terms of better food, etc.? Well, a very quick answer, finances. People want to pay, you know, uh, I don't know what, I haven't bought meat for 20 or almost 30 years, so, uh, but, um, you know, people want to pay $1.69 a pound per chicken rather than $3 a pound per chicken. Um, very quickly, I would say that checking out local local farms, um, if you are going to eat meat and eggs and dairy products, um, here in Bloomington, around the Bloomington area, there are a lot of uh, small farms. There's a, a, and I'm not putting in a plug, I don't have stock in this. Um, there is a buffalo farm nearby. I've actually talked uh, one night, just I don't know if he would remember this, but we fell into conversation over at 56 degrees at the bar. Um, He overheard me saying I was a vegetarian, and he started talking to me uh, about his buffalo farm. And essentially, the smaller smaller local farmers um, need to be supported, and that's a way that you can actually go and visit your meat, so to speak, and see exactly how it's being raised, how it's being slaughtered. Um, so I would say that people can start buying locally, but it does mean that you're not going to get the dollar store discount. Yes, no answer for the question? I don't know. Uh, I was considering asking a question about hormones used in dairy cattle. What are the risks? What led the EU to ban them? However, Bill's comment that well-producing cows equals healthy cows is faulty. If the cows on these 10 farms are producing because of hormones, his argument falls flat. Would he take hormones to be stronger, etc.? Cows that take hormones have a shorter producing life and die younger and less healthy. Okay. We don't have to answer that, I guess. No, I guess not. It's good because we're out of time. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Alice Miller for being here with us and uh, look forward to the conference. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank right. you, Mary Catherine. Thanks a lot for being here. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, Producer Catherine Hegeman and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.